1: Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddity, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it and do the best we can. Um, this week, <laughs> as you can probably hear, it's going to be a little sketchy for me. I've had a cold the last couple of days, so I've, I've been laid out on the couch. Um, we didn't and, know if
0: we were going to get to record this week.
1: Yeah, and um, if we hadn't missed last week, we probably would not. I'm just kind of... I'm, I'm, I'm barely here, so I might not be participating a whole bunch this week unless you know something really gets me awake. Are you there?
0: <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking I need to like um hire Mickey to sit there and like shoot you with a nerf gun or something every so often. Just going to ping you. It was a long time to think about that. Are you sure our connection's good? Uh, well, it was doing better right up until we started recording. And it's like the minute we hit record, it's it's still there. It's just mostly there. Okay. Well, um, if
1: it gets too if it gets too bad, we'll uh We'll, we'll stop and reconnect, but um, yeah, so we were not here last week um, because Thanksgiving, Mickey and I traveled in to see the family and, and trying to get, again, to spend as much time with, with mom uh, as her health c- continues to decline, but uh, so we do appreciate everyone's patience. Um, if it gets to where we're missing too much, I'm probably going to, I'm thinking of suspending the, uh, the, the Patreon, we'll kind of see how that goes, but um, I, I definitely don't want to be shortchanging any of our listeners. Um, let us know how you feel about that, and also feel free to adjust if you feel like we're not uh, posting often enough. I, I really do not want to, uh, right? I don't want to. I don't want to uh, feel like we're taking advantage of anyone because we're. Uh, we we just have that out there. Is if you feel like you want to support us, that's great. If not, uh, there, there's no obligation. We we just want this information out there. So
0: well, and we're just in a weird season right now, so things are kind of up in the air, and we just kind of have to play everything by ear. So. Day by day, sometimes moment by moment. <laughs> so. Yep,
1: absolutely. But that, that being up. said, um, I know you, uh, in the midst of all this, have uh, told me you had plenty of time to get to uh, get to some notes made. So let's, uh, let's see what you got.
0: I, I made some notes. Um, and so we are still in First Kings 7. I know we've been here for a while. We're going to be here for a little while longer. I don't know if we're going to get through all of uh, the chapter this week or not. Uh, a lot of it's going to depend on how awake Nathan is. But we're picking up in verse 40 through 45, um, and I'm not going to read this because this, these verses are just a list of the various things that Hiram made for the temple. And, you know, just real quickly, he made the pillars and the um, accessories with the pillars. Of course, the 400 pomegranates, the work, and the bronze sea, all of that together. But then he made pots and shovels, basins, uh, 10 stands, 12 bowls. All in bronze. And so, you know, the the point of a list like this is to let you know that this is really an impressive undertaking. There's massive amounts of work being done. And you should not forget how much work is going into this. It's supposed to just overwhelm you with information, which, you know, is great whenever you're trying to read it because you get to see the space that all the words take up. And and that really is part of writing sometimes is seeing how much space the words take up. But uh, reading it, yeah, whatever. Uh, Another point uh, that's being made here is Hiram's involved in both the big things and the little things. He's not just doing the big projects. He's over the entire um, temple complex and everything that goes into it. So we're going to pick up in verse 46. It says, In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them in the clay ground between Sukkoth and Zarethan. Okay. First off, the king did not cast these. So if you just pull this verse out of context, you're going to think that Solomon's out there working with melting bronze and doing all the the labor and stuff like that. When we say the king cast them, we're saying that he he commissioned someone to do the work on his behalf. Mm. And so he, he had Hiram do this. And... Well, we it's, like, it's, like sure. saying
1: the, it's like saying the president did something with the military. He didn't y- actually do that thing, but he made the decision.
0: Exactly. So this is an idiom, and this is one of those reasons why we need to be reading in context. We need to be reading with some common sense. Uh, we need to be working through the text for what it's trying to tell us, not what we want it to say. Because I did run across some commentaries that actually claim that C. Solomon actually did this. It, the only way that works is if you ignore the rest of the chapter and if you ignore convention and standard protocols. So, uh, you know, these are the kinds of things that get, excuse me, uh, that's that time of year Oklahoma again. Uh, these are the kind of things that get people making stupid observations. <laughs> I
1: mean, but, that, but that means you're not taking the Bible literally. I mean, the plain reading of the text, right? <laughs>
0: yes. Yes. I, I, you know, let, let's, let's just own it. I'm not taking the Bible literally. I'm not reading it literally. I'm reading it according to the standards and protocols that it has put in place, according to genre and cultural mandates. So, so why do I have to read it literally when that actually butchers the text? And matter of fact, it was one of the things that I found very interesting. I've been doing some research um, on the Kabbalah because... You know, we keep brushing up against against it in various places, and I don't want to be ignorant or give people the wrong impression. So I was listening to uh, um, scholarly lectures, and one of the observations that was made was that the Kabbalists did not read the Bible with some kind of grand esoteric uh, demands. They actually read it very literally. And the, one of the ways they proved this point was whenever we start to look at words like Shekinah, that's feminine. When we look at a Ruach, that's feminine. So these, uh, you know, the Shekinah glory of God, that's a f- uh, believed to be a feminine aspect of God. The Ruach, the spirit of God, is believed to be a feminine aspect of God. And of course, then they build off of that. So the, when we read too literally, we actually wind up creating... More difficulties, if not heresies, because we are holding on to the sense of pride we have that we we can't allow the Bible to to tell us how to read it. We have to say this is this is how we read stuff because this is how I understand words. Um, you need to be better at reading if that's your position. You need to read better because most of the theologies and most of the viewpoints I've encountered that I disagree with uh, concerning the Bible are from people who, who very much are on, die on that hill. I have to read this literally. And then they will contextualize the parts they don't like because everybody contextualizes something. It's just that simple. So I, I see your brain working. <laughs> I,
1: can't, I, can't say, uh, I can't say it on the podcast. I'll tell you afterwards.
0: <laughs> okay. So um, anyhow, uh, okay. Okay. The second thing this verse tells us is that uh, uh, the casting happened, and the word here is literally in the thickness of the ground be- between um, Zukoth and, and Zarathan. That this is clay. This is a layer of thick clay between the the two towns. And so, basically, what it sounds like they might be doing, and I'm, you know, it's kind of hard to be sure, is that they're actually might be building the molds for some of this directly into the ground. Um, or they could be gathering it and for certain things and actually, you know, sculpting smaller molds. But it would have taken massive amounts of clay to make these molds, okay? Because you've got to have molds that are strong enough to stand up against the weight of the amount of metal going into them. So it makes sense that you would actually work in a place where this kind of clay is very readily available because you would have to have, you know, I, I'm trying to think of what it would take. Uh, I know that with my small castings, we were doing two to three inch walls around of just a small pour. So if you've got something that is the thickness of a hand's breadth and it's as big as a swimming pool, you're probably looking a foot and a half, two foot deep, at least around every, every edge. So that's, that's a lot of clay. So it makes sense that you would work where the clay was, was readily available. And it's possible, and I read some claims, and uh, I was trying to find out some more, um, couldn't uh, get into the full conversation I wanted to with uh, Becca, our resident uh, archaeologist. Uh, but I read some claims that there was a discovery of Solomon's copper mines, which copper was one of the primary elements ma- used in making bronze, um, there by Zarathan. And so if that is true, it, it, it makes sense that they would work between Zarethan and Sukkot because now they've got the, the clay and the copper just right there. And so you work where you have the materials readily available because we're talking about heavy materials. It just makes sense. Um, and I know, I, I, it's probably like spending way too much time on details that nobody else cares about. But if you've done this kind of work, it's kind of stuff that sticks out to you. So. Verse 47, and Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because there were so many of them and the weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So, um, you know, again, if you're working by the mines, you're working near the place where it's being smelted and, and you're just, you know, you're producing it as quickly as you can. It makes sense, again, that you aren't going to take time to weigh the bronze that you're mining from your own mines. This isn't like gold that you're going to trade for, that you're, you're going to purchase, that has an actual weight assigned to it because of how you acquire it. This is something completely different. I mean, another way to think of it, if I buy zucchini at Walmart, it goes in the scale and I'm going to pay per pound and I'm going to know how much zucchini I have. If I get out of my garden, it's never going to touch a scale. I, it just, why? I'm going to cook up what I want. So it's just a common sense thing. So, verse 48 through 50, uh, a list of gold implements that Solomon had made for the temple are laid out. Uh, there's an altar, there's the table for the bread of presence, there's the lampstands, um, five on the south, five on the north. So there's 10 of those. There are um, lamps, tongs, cups snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, pans, sockets, doors with flowers for the Holy of Holies. Um, again, the, the gold altar here, this is not used for the, the sacrifice of meat or the burning of any kind of uh, for, um, grain offering or anything like that. If this is strictly used for incense because incense does not burn hot enough to melt the gold. And it's a common belief that um, the gods, anything spiritual actually fed on the fragrance of the sacrifice that they didn't actually consume the material of the sacrifice. It's only whenever it was converted into a sweet and savory smell that it became something that the spiritual being, whether we're talking the God of the Bible or we're talking about some other God could actually consume. And this was very much part of the mindset of the ancient Israelites. We know this because, uh, when you look at Levation, sorry, Leviticus, um, Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 6, they all talk about this. Genesis 8, 21 talks about this. Psalm 66, 15. And then in the New Testament, we have Ephesians 5, 2, Philippians four eighteen, and 2 Corinthians 2, 15. These are all verses that talk about the, the savory aroma of what's being offered to God, whether we're talking about a literal sacrifice or our prayers and, or our praise. So, you know, this is not a concept that is outside of the Jewish belief and and uh, way of uh, worship. So, in First Kings, we have Solomon making these tables. Um, it actually has uh, him making one table, and this is one of those points where we're going to run into a little contradiction between here and Second Chronicles, because in Second Chronicles four, it says that Solomon made. 10 tables total for the new temple. So um, the numbers on the, the temple as far as implements implements do not match up. Uh, we just need to acknowledge that. I, I don't think we need to do any kind of mental or, you know, historical acrobatics to try to make those line up. The point is the the, the tools needed to, um, to fulfill the worship requirements in the temple are there. Solomon made sure they're there. Actually, he goes over and above if he made 10. He goes beyond what was required according to God's dictates. And the rabbis actually say that the fact that he makes 10 of everything that he should have just made one of demonstrates his, uh, his great love and devotion for God. And they also claim that he— made these ten to kind of flank the ones that Bezalel made for the tabernacle. So they, Bezalel's work was considered to be a centerpiece with Solomon's actually kind of, um, you know, frame, acting as a framework around what Bezalel had created. So verse 51, thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things David, his father, dedicated, the silver, the gold, the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house uh, of the Lord. So this is another verse that gets overlooked by Christian commentaries and only gets dealt with very briefly. There's really nothing said about it. And y'all know me, if the Christian commentaries aren't going to talk about it, I'm going to start digging wherever I can to try to find out what's going on here. Um, I thought this was very interesting because, you know, we're told uh, so often in Sunday school that when Solomon builds the temple, he takes all the stuff that David had acquired and he, he uses that as the material for the temple. But then here it seems like he's not used it at all, that he's actually storing it now. And so that, that just seemed really odd to me that there seems to be the, this discrepancy and the, the um, suggestion that Arbanel Uh, Ebenel made was that he believed that Solomon believed so deeply that David was, you know, not allowed to participate in the building of the temple that he didn't even use the treasures that David had gathered. Instead, he hung on to them and they were used for the daily operating cost of the temple. And so that way they weren't incorporated into the actual structure of the temple. Um, You know, I kind of get it. I Solomon tends to be someone who goes over and above. Uh, he's someone who who uh, he needed one temple, uh, one table, so he makes ten. He needs one lampstand, he makes ten. Uh, when he makes sacrifices, he makes over the top sacrifices. So why wouldn't he go above and beyond in this aspect too? And you know, it. it I think sometimes we we expect things to line up with very simple answers and to, to be able to say, oh, well, this is what I learned in Sunday school. And then when we have to stop and think about it, it's like your brain kind of fries a little bit. And so you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to actually pause and look at what the ramifications are. And I have to wonder sometimes if that's what Christian commentators are doing. Are they going, you know, this doesn't line up with what I heard, so I'm just going to brush by it. And I don't know why we do that, because those... Are often the most interesting points. So, but I figured this was probably a good time to address the elephant in the room because, in the middle of all of this research, one of the things I did come keep running across were different articles of people complaining that this description of the temple showed that Solomon was incapable, or that Judaism in general was incapable. Of maintaining their own commandments that God had given them, Um, specifically that the second commandment, not to make any kind of image, was being violated here in uh, this description of the temple, because obviously we have lots of imagery. We have palm trees, we have pomegranates, we have cherubim, uh, we have gourds, we have all of these different things. And so you have to ask, what is going on? What's, what's, where did the second commandment go? And the first thing you need to do whenever you encounter a question like that is to go back and actually read what the Bible says, because so many of us learn the Ten Commandments, and we learn this very abbreviated form. We did not learn the actual verses As they're written in Exodus, we learned one line. We learned the key element of that particular verse. We didn't learn the whole thing. So um, the verse is found in Exodus 20, verses four and five. Yes, two verses, for thou shalt not make a graven image. Right there, this tells you something's off with the way we've learned it. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or is in the earth, sorry, the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. So is there a contradiction? I'm watching you look <laughs> at <laughs> your microphone. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I'm dealing with my, I'm trying to deal with my children being loud. I'm texting. I can't hear them, them so. Well, uh, I can, so I'm, I'm going to have to edit it out on my end later.
0: Uh, Don't you love them? I, so, I just gave sorry them. to get
1: your hopes up. I don't. I mean,
0: oh, okay. Well, see, I kind of know Hector where you're. Where you're... A treat. I gave him something to <laughs> chew on. Is so well, maybe your kids need something to chew on.
1: They they go through treats pretty quickly these days. We're <laughs> having to increase the size of our recipes where they're they're getting to that age.
0: <laughs> well, I know they can put the treats away when they're here at my house, but I just you know, I figure it's because they can. Um, but okay, so. The, is there's a contradiction? That's the question I'd ask is, is the temple with all of its imagery a contradiction to the second commandment? The, the simple answer, the shallow answer is yes. If we just go by the, you know, what we learned for the chart in Sunday school, absolutely. It's, it's a contradiction. And unfortunately, because most people don't take the time to go back and read the actual statement and they don't take time to know their bible and they don't take time to try to come up with an understanding of what's being said here they immediately say oh well there's an issue here and this actually hurts people's faith these kinds of statements hurt people's faith this is the reason why we're doing this podcast we want to go deeper into the scripture cuz if you just keep reading it doesn't require some kind of great theological biblical literature degree it doesn't require commentaries just keep reading the 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 verse tells you why it says not to make these things you're not to make these things so you can bow down to them to worship them and the the purpose of all of this is to keep us from accidentally worshipping the wrong thing which we're going to find out with the bronze serpent who's going to show back up this is the snake that was uh in numbers that was um uh, the, the people had to look at to be cured of the snake bite it's put in the um Temple at one point, and people start to worship it because it's an image, and it's an image that was used um, for supernatural, uh, uh, supernatural healing. But so this this prohibition has a purpose. It's not just a blanket prohibition, and it's also to keep people from from misrepresenting God. Now, I think one of the problems is that we have is that we've we've done this for years, but I think it's gotten worse with social media. We try to teach the Bible in sound bites.
1: Hundred and forty characters.
0: Uh, exactly. We we wanna we wanna condense <coughs> it Hey, now my kid's being loud. <coughs> we wanna condense it down as small as possible. <coughs> Hold on. <laughs> Hector.
1: <coughs> yeah, that uh <laughs> He would you, he just wants to be part of the show, right? There he is. So um now I I know what you're saying that we we have a bad tendency to uh, to stop listening about halfway through and the um, what did you say? So no we have I'm a kidding. Bad ten- <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have a bad tendency to stop listening halfway through, and I, I, I get I have this happen all the time. Uh, I'll give people directions for stuff that you know, like like for example, at my job, I'm the only person who te- typically deals with certain things. And so I have certain ways of doing things to keep everyone in in line, keep everything organized, keep me from making mistakes. And a lot of times it's one or two extra tiny steps that take you about half a second to do, but it saves you going back to double check everything, you know, and having to go through and recount everything 15 minutes. Right. So it's, it's stuff like that where it's like, if you now listen to me, do this. Make sure you do the second part, too, or it's not (laughs) going to work.
0: Well, and I really think one of the ways we can really work on this, whenever, especially there's a few issues, and I'm not going to go into them because I could get totally sidetracked, but there's a few issues in the Bible where there's one or two verses that people like to build entire theologies on and ignore the context. And by context, I'm not just talking about what the verse before and the verse after is saying. I'm talking about what's said throughout the rest of that particular book, or what's said throughout the rest of the Bible on that particular topic. So one way that we need to start, that helps me, is if I took those verses out, just pretend like in this situation, like I never learned the Ten Commandments, just put them aside, and pretend two things. I can go with one of two scenarios. One is that I'm in the temple. If I'm in the temple and I'm looking around and I'm seeing all this imagery, I'm going to realize, especially if I'm a person from that era, that God's image is the only image that is, um, you know, it's what's the word I'm looking for?
1: Conspicuously absent.
0: Thank you. I kept wanting to mix up my syllables there. Um, So anyway, (laughs) and, and when you realize. You know, Every other temple you would have gone to would have had this image of the God in there. You, that's something you would have looked for. That would have been something that would, you would have been part of your purpose of being there is to look at that image. You would not have missed the fact that the image was gone. Or, and so the, the, the lesson here can be gleaned from the temple itself is that you realize that the, that the image isn't there. But then think about being at Sinai. Think about being Moses going up on that mountain, having a talk with God, hearing his voice, being engulfed by his presence, so saturated with the light of his glory that people can't even look at you unless you veil your faith, face, not faith, faiths. Um, So anyway, and now you're rewriting the the Ten Commandments out. How strongly are you going to word this? It's not just going to be a suggestion that you don't try to, to recreate an image of God. It's going to be in very strong language. Hey, guys, don't do this. You cannot do this. It's impossible to come close to doing anything close to God's image. And it's going to actually be offensive and insulting to try to even capture that image. Uh, it, it comes pretty close to something. There's a concept called uh, negative theology. Um and, and basically negative theology says that you really can't say anything about God, all you can do is say what you can't say about God.
1: This is particularly popular, particularly popular when you're discussing the Trinity.
0: Um, right? Well, and, and it goes even further than that because you can't say like uh, some in some areas it goes further than that. Like there's some who say you can't say God is good. And the reason why you can't say God is good is because your idea of goodness isn't anywhere close to what it means for God to be good. Or you can't say God is wise because your idea and understanding of wisdom is so flawed and corrupt compared to God's perfect wisdom. And so in order to—now, some of the rabbinic, rabbinical schools took this so far as to say, in order to avoid this, you say God's not good, God's not wise, because this is to to acknowledge your own shortcomings, not to say that God is not any of these things. Really, it's just that God is so far beyond your ability to portray Him to the world as wise and good, or whatever other positive attribute you want to ascribe to Him. And this only leaves you with the ability to say something negative, and so this is kind of uh, in. An inactive, enacted, uh, negative theology because now instead of having a positive image, a three dimensional image of God, you have a negative space, and this is a reminder and a visual lesson of how great and grand God is outside and beyond any kind of human understanding. So if you if you think about these things and you you read through the Bible and you, you Just act like you hadn't read that second commandment. You would actually get the principle of the second commandment from the narrative. It's right there. You don't do this because everything you would do would be insulting. Everything you do would be so just shallow and it would actually lead people astray from a correct understanding or perception of God.
1: Yeah, and because we are so far removed from this idea of going into places where uh, temples and idols are, we we don't see it all the time, especially here in America. There's not a place where there's a temple and there's an idol, so we're not familiar enough with it to know when we look at things, to know what's missing.
0: Yeah. Well, absolutely. And this is the reason why when we look at God in the Scriptures, He's never defined. He's described, but He's not defined. Definitions, by definition, say, this is where something begins and ends. Here's where the edges are. You can't do that with an infinite being. It's impossible. And so um, this is the ultimate, you know, hey, we're going to describe him. And how do we describe him? Well, the only concrete elements we can bring to the table are the things that he has created. And we do that by, you know, putting those things in like the lilies, like the palm trees, like the cherubim, like his original uncorrupted creation there in Eden what does this look like uh, and try to get as close as we can and so there there's a lesson being taught in the temple in the, in the creation of the temple and i think one of the things that we really need to think about it with these little sound bites we need to stop Treating them as the whole of the lesson, we need to use them as the key that unlocks the rest of the lesson. Because so often we go, okay, here, I know, I know this little clip. I can spit this out real fast. I can give this little cliche, pat answer, and it's done. It's settled. We don't need to talk about it anymore because this is, quote, the plain reading of the text. This is the little, literal reading of the text. Where if we used it as a key to unlock greater things, to go deeper, then it becomes something useful. Other than this, it's just a weight. It's just something that we're carrying around in our pocket, uh, wearing holes in our britches. It's not helpful. And so that's the reason why I think we need to be working um, towards understanding the Bible, not from the point of these sound bites or one or two verses that we take out of context. And working backwards into the Bible, we actually will take the Bible and then try to filter that verse through what we're, we're seeing in the rest of the story in those narrative moments. Because, man, when you build a theology over single verses, single lines, you're, you're going to get led astray. And so, God does not condemn the making of images, He does not condemn doing things to be beautiful and pretty. He doesn't. Um, Tell us that we can't have decorations to honor him. He says, Don't try to make an image to bow down to and worship. That's not what you're supposed to do. And so if there's a big difference in attitude and, and purpose whenever we create something that points us to God versus something that is supposed to be God. And that's that's the the um that's the big thing I wanted to get through. So um, I'm actually, oh, I actually one more point on that because I knew I had something else. it been a couple of days since I'll my notes. Uh, when we do this, one of the rabbinic principles I think is very helpful is that no law is enacted unless we have two narratives that demonstrate how to apply that law. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I think that's wonderful. I think that is just an absolute fabulous way to filter through the Bible and try to understand things better. Uh, I don't, you know, is it is it a God given decree to do this? I'm not going that far, but sometimes these little ideas can help us understand. And you know, when in the creation of the temple, if it had been a violation of God's command, uh, why would God accept it? Because mm. later on, what we're going to see. With Solomon's uh, prayer and the the um, what am I trying to say inauguration of the temple? That's what I'm trying to say. When we see that become the place where the worship is going to happen, God is going to show His overwhelming pleasure. And you know what we find is when it comes to worshiping God, when there is an infraction, He doesn't respond this way. We can look at the golden calf. You know, that, that was not received, that was not approved of, and God made very clear to the people that this is not to be tolerated. The sons of Korah offering up strange fire, again, not allowed. God made a very strong statement, you will worship me correctly. And then David moving the ark, when he moved the ark improperly, God made sure that, you know, David got the point, you're going to do things according to my command. So obviously Solomon did not violate any of God's commands in building the temple with the imagery, because doing so would have resulted in a death sentence. That's just right. the way it is.
1: Right, and we we see that too with the uh, the building of the tabernacle, we see it with the building of the ark, of the covenant. We see it with the building of the bronze serpent. Mm-hmm. You know, which that project must have been on like must have been really rushed. I'm guessing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yes. I, I don't think that was a very fine, detailed
1: creation. I mean, unless you had somebody who was really good, but...
0: It would be interesting to wonder if Bezalel was still around at that point in time, and if he was involved. That, Of course, that's probably just speculation. But, yeah, it, bronze casting is not something that just any oh. old Joe Blow walks in off the street and starts doing and doing well. It, <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, I
1: imagine they must've had some kind of setup because they were probably, they probably needed some kind of like wagons and implements and things to use along the way.
0: Mm -hmm. That, or, you know, or there was extensive trading there, there had to be something I, and it's, it really is interesting to think about how, um, you know, how much do they have and how much do they hang on to? Because, you know, you watch, um, shows about the old West and people going across the desert and tra- not desert across the prairies and the plains, trying to get to uh, Oregon or what have you. And what did the people bring? What was left behind? What do they lose along the way? You know?
1: Oh yeah. Well, know? I mean, even like, Oh, so one of my favorite things to do is uh, not favorite, but one of the things I like to do on occasion is I like to go to antique stores. Cause it's kind of like a museum it's free. And if you really want, you can take some of that stuff home. Right. Um, the, uh, Like, and when I say antique stores, I mean like actual antiques, not like the, nevermind. Yeah, but (laughs) sometimes those are fun too. But uh, one of the things that I did notice is uh, when I was traveling, when I was doing the oversized, when I was doing the uh, pilot car stuff, you know, I'd, I'd take a load back east and I'd stop at the antique stores because the farther east you go, the cheaper antiques get. Right. Because of that exact reason, people... The farther west you went, the less, the more stuff they just dumped off the side of the wagon. It's not important; just let it go.
0: Yeah, you get put in that situation, you figure out real quick what's necessary to survive, mm-hmm. and you know, and not to the same level by any stretch of the imagination. But you know, even living in a camper for eight years, you learn real quick what you don't need to keep in your house.
1: Yeah, and, and yeah, no need, you know. It was it 1883? We Mickey and I were watching, and they they like left the piano behind, and I'm like, no, mm-hmm. the, it's terrible.
0: Yeah, no, I, but at the same time, can you imagine trying to cross a river with horses with an with a piano?
1: Um, and trying to justify that to people who were falling in and drowning.
0: Yeah, yeah, I that it, I get it. it. The sacrifices that people made to get there were were insane, and you know, and basically, you know what that that wagon train trip would take, um, I think it was what, 18 months to two years or something like that to get through. And, um, I I may be completely off on that, but now we're talking 40 years. Right. You know, (laughs) that's, that's a huge difference. I bet they got really good at economizing. Uh, you know, one of my rules, whenever I was living in the camper was if it didn't do double duty, I didn't need it. If it couldn't perform at least two jobs, then it needed to go. And so, um, you know, I just got very picky, and you know, I've moved into a house and I've gotten a lot less picky. It's amazing how quickly the space fills up. Um, but anyhow, that's a, a topic for another day. So that kind of concludes chapter seven. Uh, we're going to move into chapters eight, uh, and I know we're like taking forever, but this, like I said before, this is what happens whenever I study in little fits and starts because I have time to think between verses about where I'm going to go with stuff, or you know ask another question that I suddenly I have to have answered. So it can get pretty random sometimes. And this is just the stuff I'm willing to admit on air that I think about. Uh, So verse eight, uh, sorry, chapter eight, verse one, then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the father's houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord to the city of David, which is Zion. OK, so the temple's been completed. Uh, it's now time to um, bring the crowning jewel, if you will, that the Ark of the Covenant needs to come home. Um, the, this is the same Ark that had led the nation through those 40 years in the desert. Uh, it was the highest symbol uh, of the Jewish faith. Um, it actually is supposed to contain certain sacred items. We'll get into that later. And it is the means by which God brought victory to the land because they often took it into battle with them. Um, This is going to be the ultimate test of whether Solomon's temple is accepted or not. Remember, Solomon would have known, he would have maybe even been present when David tried to bring the, the ark into Jerusalem the first time, and he would have known how badly that went at the beginning. So, Solomon gathers any and everyone who would have been seen as a leader at this point in time. Um, We have almost every title used for Israelite males at the writer's disposal being employed in this one verse. Um, DeVries actually said this assumes a universal male participation in the dedication ceremony. No tribal, regional, or social segregation was allowed since the temple was intended to be a powerful, unifying symbol these men were the spiritual leaders at the very least within their own sphere of influence but then we also had it seems to the the invitation extended beyond just spiritual leadership it's every man probably over the age of 13 and they had to witness this event because they were going to be the ones who are responsible for reporting this out sharing the news telling the world and their families, hey, this is what happened on this day. This is how God uh, approved and made sure that we understood this is now his home. Excuse me. It very much uh, mirrors Exodus 19. And, you know, God commands the, um, commanded Moses to gather the elders to witness his appearance on Sinai, God's appearance on Sinai. And, you know, he was present and everyone saw the thunder and the lightning and And they saw God's acceptance of Moses as his spokesman and as the leader for the nation. And um, so we see this kind of being repeated again. Now, I know somebody's going to ask, why not women? Uh, You know, one of uh, the reasons why women would not be included in this is because it is a time-bound command. Women are routinely exempted from time-bound commands. This means anything that has to be done or completed on a scheduled time, women aren't required to uphold. And this is for a number of reasons. Number one, you know, the, the uh, necessity of taking care of children. It's kind of hard to, to necessarily uh, keep your schedule and arranged around the needs of your babies. Sometimes they require that you interrupt uh, certain obligations and duties to other people in order to take care of children. Uh, another reason is because of the menstrual cycle, there's always going to be that one week out of the month where women are unclean, uh, and so therefore not um, not capable of participating. And simply by exempting women from these time-bound commands allows women to participate as they see fit. It kind of gives them a little bit of autonomy. And they aren't having to report to someone, well, I didn't do it. And here's evidence of why I couldn't be a participant in this. And here's, here's someone to witness to why I, I had to miss out on that. This allowed women to have some dignity, too. So uh, it's, not, it, it's not a horrible thing that women are left out. It's actually considered to be a grace to, to make concession for the very real needs of just living their lives. So uh, of course, this is a momentous occasion, um, and we need to remember that just because women were not commanded to be there, it doesn't mean that they're excluded. It was very much understood that a lot of times when the men were commanded to do something, women were allowed; they just weren't compelled. So there, there's a women had a little bit more freedom in this area, which is really interesting. Um, and you know, and people had to be watching not just to see what God was going to do, but to see was Solomon going to repeat his father's mistakes or was Solomon going to get it right there there had mm-hmm. to be some major pressure going on right here and the other really cool thing that the the kind of subtle thing that's going on here is it's in this phrase the city of david which is zion now the ark was already in jerusalem we know this it was already there because David had brought it there. It was, you know, we've mentioned it several times already. Uh, it's, that's in 2 Samuel 5 7. Um, Solomon did not need to bring the ark to the city of David. Furthermore, taking the ark to the temple would actually be removing the ark from Jerusalem because the temple is built kind of off-site from Jerusalem. It's not actually in the city. Uh, the temple is in the threshing field of uh, uh, the Jebusite. I, words are not wording for me today. But anyway, so when Solomon takes the ark to the temple in Jerusalem, in the city of David, which is Zion, all of these things, basically what he's doing is he's now expanding the city limits. He has enlarged Jerusalem so that now the city limits encompass the temple mound, too. It's very subtle. It, it's something that would be easy to miss, but it, it makes a difference in the political scheme of things because Mm -hmm. now God's house is in Solomon's capital city. So verse two, uh, all the men of Jerusalem assembled to King Solomon in the feast of the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So two questions. What's the feast of Ethanim? And why are we told that Ethanim is the seventh month? So to answer the second questions, we got to answer the first question. Uh, thankfully, almost every commentary is going to o- answer the second question. You aren't going to have to do a whole lot of reading. Ethanim is the Canaanite name for the month of Tishri. Tishri has three different feasts. Uh, the first one is Rosh Hashanah, which is the uh, Jewish New Year. The second is Yom Kippur, which is a time of repentance and considered to be the most holy of Jewish holidays. And then Sukkot. So each of these um, feasts kind of have a reason to recommend themselves for why it happened during this time. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, I just want to look at each of the feasts because I know I was not familiar with the feast for a very long time. Uh, and so I know a lot of other people uh, who didn't grow up with any kind of uh, understanding of Judaism don't know anything about the feast. So. We're just going to give some highlights. There's way more to these feasts. They're really cool to study because there's a lot of things that um, where the Bible lessons are enacted and there's something you can participate in. And I'm not saying you need to keep the feast as a Christian. I'm, I'm not trying to be a Judaizer, uh, but there's some really beautiful lessons that can be brought out. So Rosh Hashanah, uh, literally it's the head of the year. And by head, we aren't talking like you know, has authority over the year. We're saying that the source of the year. This is where it begins. This is where it starts. Um, this is the day when it's believed that God, according to Rabbinic uh, Judaism, that God opens the books of life and death. And you know, if your name's inscribed there, you you get to enter heaven. If it's not, there's issues. Um, but the month prior to Rosh Hashanah is uh, Elul, and it's considered to be a, a time of introspection and preparation for the new year. And it's a time to repair broken relationships and to finish tasks and obligations. So if you made a vow to someone, you want to get that vow fulfilled. Um, if you uh, hurt someone, if you've done some kind of sin, you, this is a time to repent so that you can go into the new year with a fresh and pure heart. And so Rosh Hashanah begins uh, what's known as the days of awe. The ten, it's 10 days leading up to Yom Kippur. And After a little, and where the the introspection is all about personal repentance, then you move into a time of national or community repentance, where you realize that your success as an individual is really tied and interdependent on the community that you inhabit. So you want your community to be prosperous and successful. So you, you repent on behalf of your community, because even though you may not have actively been part of the sin or wrong that your community performed. The fact that you are a part of it, it's still partially your responsibility because communities aren't created by individuals; or created by a multitude of people. Um, during this time, uh, God's kingship over creation is reaffirmed. Uh, if you look for Rosh Hashanah in the Bible, you're not going to find it by that name. Uh, tradition points us back to Leviticus 28, 24 to 25 as the basis for this holiday. This is the Feast of Trumpets, uh, as in blowing the shofar, because the shofar is blown extensively and multiple times in Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Sometimes Rosh Hashanah is uh, referred to as the Feast of Remembrance, and it's celebrated on the first month, the first day of the seventh month. Um, And because one of the things in the Feast of Trumpets that you're commanded to do is to remember, and you're supposed to think back over the last year. So, uh, and that's in Leviticus. So Yom Kippur, the day of atonement is found in the next passage in Leviticus, Leviticus 23, 26 to 32. It's considered to be the holiest day of the year. It's the day when people are believed to be closest to God. It's celebrated on the 10th day of, uh, of Tishri or Ethanim. It's a day of fasting. You give charity, uh, you bless your children, uh, believed to be the day that God closes the, um, Book of Life and Death, and so your fate for the year is fixed at that point because it, it's done. The book's closed, so you want to make sure you get everything right with God before that happens. Again, that's a rabbinic belief, but um, still very much part of how it's uh, viewed in the today's celebration. After a celebratory uh, meal to break the fasting of Yom Kippur, you immediately begin uh, processing and planning to celebrate Sukoth, which is the Feast of the Booths. That's described in Leviticus uh, 23, 33 through 34, and it's celebrated five days after Yom Kippur. And it is observed by building sukkahs or booths or little tabernacles to remember that time of wandering in the desert. This is also known as the festivals of in gathering. Where uh, crops are gathered in in ancient times, uh, it's not uncommon to sleep in the fields and to watch over your crops. If you were listening during Judges, you know that one of the things the Philistines like to do is to come in, take everything they could get, and burn the rest of the field. So, how do you prevent this kind of thing from happening? You sleep with your crops. So, we have three distinct festivals and feasts in the seventh month to choose from to figure out when was this happening because the thing is they kind of all run together and the writer of first king does not distinct does not distinguish for us which feast it would have been now tradition places the day as rosh hashanah and we're going to talk about um why that's probably the best candidate now um if you're a bible student one of the first things you're going to know is that there's a problem with declaring Rosh Hashanah as the head of the year or the new year. Uh, and that actually goes back to Exodus 12, verses 1 and 2. And it says, The Lord says to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the, of the year for you. These are, this is the opening verses on uh, the passage dealing with the Passover. So we have this issue because Rosh Hashanah is said to be the new year. And here it is being celebrated in the seventh month. And yet we're told in Exodus, the new year is supposed to be in Passover and Passover is held in the spring. So why do we have two new years? Um, Rosh Hashanah was not celebrated as the original new years because Exodus, the commands in Exodus were followed scrupulously or you know somewhat um for a while uh we can debate that for a while but um anyway but by 1 BCE 1 year um before the common era Hillel and Shammai are are talking about Rosh Hashanah so we know before Jesus was born it was part of the popular um the popular observance of new year um yes sorry i cannot say a scholar named uh, Kaufman uh suggests a celebration of the seventh month corresponds to the Babylonian New Year, which is celebrated, uh used to celebrate Marduk's victory over Tiamat, possibly uh the result of the Babylonian uh, exile. Now, um that kind of makes a little bit of sense and there might be some ties back with the Bronze Sea and stuff like that. Um I would really have to work hard to make the case and to, to make it coherent, but I think we can see the little evidence of some possible connections there. Uh, this is possibly bolstered too because in Hebrew, Ethanim, the name used for this month in First Kings, is um, the Canaanite or Phoenician name for the month, meaning strong or mighty, and it possibly refers to the storms or the the currents and the rivers from the waters of the storms. And so um that there's some question about why kings use use this name for the month instead of the Hebrew name. Now um I'm looking at our time here. We're we're gonna to try to get through this because it's <laughs> this is good. Go for it. So in in the in the Talmud, uh there's a tractate uh Rosh Hashanah, it's a Gemara. It's basically rabbinic commentary on uh, Mishnah, which is your your oral oral law, uh, and basically they're trying to understand the significance of Rosh Hashanah, and so the the tractates they're a lot of fun for me because basically they're presented as conversations with one rabbi who says this and this rabbi says that, and a third one comes in and contradicts those two, and there's this entire back and forth where each side, and sometimes multiple sides, and it's not just two. Sometimes it's four or five sides, are being presented, and each one is trying to, um, trying to present their reasoning in a way that is supported by scripture. So in tractate Rosh Hashanah, two of our big characters are Rabbi Eleazar, and the other one is Rabbi Yehoshua, Yehoshua. Joshua. We're just going to go with that, Joshua. Dear Lord, somebody help my my speaking. Um. so Rabbi Eliezer says, absolutely, the first of the year, it, 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 it's Rosh Hashanah. We're, we're just, we're, we're there. And so um, anyway, then Rabbi uh, Joshua, he says, um, <laughs> it's Passover is the only possible time that can be the new year. So there begins to be this really long back and forth. And each one of them cite traditions about why their view has to be the correct one. So in um, chapter 10b, verse, verse 10, Rabbi Elazar says, in Tishrei the world was created. In Tishrei the patriarchs were born. In Tishrei the patriarchs died. On Passover, Isaac was born. On Rosh Hashanah, Sarah, Rachel, and Hannah were all remembered by God and conceived. On Rosh Hashanah, Joseph came out of prison. On Rosh Hashanah, our forefathers, slavery in Egypt ceased. In Nisan, the first no- month, the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt and in Tishri, the future of the Jewish people will be redeemed in the final redemption with the coming of the Messiah. So Rabbi Joshua argues almost exactly the opposite. He says, no, all the stuff that you say happened in Tishri happens at, at Passover. The only thing that stays as a point of agreement is that Isaac is born at Passover. And each rabbi goes on to defend their position with more detailed stories uh, most notably the story of creation which i mean obviously creation and the temple are two things that go together we've already pointed that out and eleazar says tishri has to be the new year and then that has to be when creation occurred because there's food for ready for adam and eve to eat there's there's fruit on the tree and Yeho- um, joshua placed creation at nisan because the animals had to breed in order to populate the world to be you know be fruitful and multiply. And then Eleazar supports his claim that the the patriarchs were born on Tishri by citing our verse here in 1 Kings 2, because Tishri, or ethanim, which means strong or mighty, must be a reference to the patriarchs themselves. And so from there, we go through this crazy, wild, biblical journey and Hebrew history lesson. And they're going to examine all this minutia, things that you and I would probably miss, uh, whether it it has to do with agriculture, math, sacrifices, um, you know, it, it's just, it's really intense and it takes a lot of concentration to follow. And the, what's really cool about this, and the reason why I like this kind of argument, is that this is not a senseless debate over when the new year is. It's not even a senseless debate over when does creation happen. The debate is over a very significant theological issue, which is more significant, being or redemption. Because Rabbi Joshua's position is that the new year must be founded in Exodus, because the redemption of Israel from Egypt is the defining moment for the nation of Israel. Rabbi Eleazar, he's maintaining: if we didn't exist, if we hadn't been created, then there could be no re- redemption. And since there's no redemption, uh, you know, there's no redemption without creation, without being. Now, they never put that fine of a point on it. So if you're looking for them to see these things specifically, you're not going to get it because that's not how rabbis argued because they don't care about the esoteric. they don't care about the abstracts. They care about the truths that can be demonstrated in concrete events and events that have happened in history. And this is how you learn what's important theologically, not because you have some highfalutin idea, that's, I mean, the perfect ideal, the perfect um, philosophical uh, argument or reality, that's a Greek thing. In Judaism, it's all about what's enacted, what actually is tangible, what what can you participate in. Even all of the holidays, they aren't just simply remembering. They're, you're supposed to put yourself in a mindset of being there, of trying to participate in the pathos and the the angst of the moment, or even the happiness and the glory of the moment. Don't just remember it. Try to be there as much as possible by placing yourself within the story. And so, you know, we still ask this question, what is more important? Is our being, is the fact that we were created, is that something we can prioritize over redemption? Or is redemption the thing that, that sets us apart and makes us a true living thing. Um, I mean, we can't, without being, we can't be redeemed, but can we be, can we be without being redeemed? Uh, are the two concepts independent? Are they interdependent? And so, you know, these are, these are really hard questions and we can talk about being redeemed from the beginning of the world. So were we re- redeemed at creation? Are we redeemed later? Um, the the point is, all of these these traditions and all of these lessons that are held within this this um, celebration of Rosh Hashanah is to pose a question, or not all of them, but at least within this this tractate, it's to pose the question of how do we relate to God? Are are we simply beings that exist because He created us? And I feel like I'm repeating myself, but I I really want to make the point. Are we, do we truly exist without redemption? And so that's, I mean, that's really a, a profound thought to wrap your head around and try to understand because they're wanting to know, can we prioritize one of, above the other or do they have to coexist? Because if you get to the end of their conversation, you're going to realize that no side wins. No, you know, One of them doesn't come out ahead of the other or best the other. And what they end up doing is they, they agree that it's entirely proper for Israel to have two, actually there's four, but at least two new years, one in which they celebrate the fact that creation exists, and that as human beings, they, they are human beings, and that they actually do exist because of redemption. So it's, it's a really fascinating thing to read. Uh, You can get it online. That is, again, track, take Rosh Hashanah. Um, I think it's good to kind of read through and to to see the thought processes that the Bible inspired among these people whose very lives were defined by the Torah uh, and to see Mm. how it impacted the way they looked at reality and how their theological um, arguments went because I think so often in today's society, what we wind up with, the, with theologians discussing these ideas, they, they almost kind of belong in this rarefied atmosphere that never really touches down. It never really puts its feet on the ground. And so that's the yeah, difference that, in yeah, my that's mind. One
1: the, that's one of the thoughts I had earlier, was like, it's interesting to me how much the, um, um how much the, uh. Uh, Jewish holidays and the, the Jewish uh, faith revolves mm-hmm. around the natural order of the world um, with the calendars and things like that, where um, Christianity, uh, particularly in the West, is very uh, divorced from a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, that that was kind of interesting. Yeah, we're and we're gonna go into some more because I mean I know anybody
0: who's followed Dr. Heiser's work, I mean they hear Tishari and they've got like you know bells and whistles going off in their brain. We're gonna bring in a little bit more about that and how that um uh plays into the conversation here. But when I read, uh, you know, I had to read the whole tractate. It's like 22 pages long. It's nothing, you know, not a massive work at all. Um, so you, you know. I kind of got sidetracked, and I was just looking at the conversation and realizing there's a lot of people who never will read anything to do with the Talmud because it is such an expansive work. it feels kind of overwhelming. So uh, I think that if you're interested in the Talmud, and again, we take everything in the Talmud with a grain of salt, we don't just accept everything. Uh, you want to be careful. Uh, this is probably a pretty good place to to uh, begin. Reading and there's going to be some things that are really going to mess with your head uh, if, if you um, dig deep into the Talmud, but um, there's some, also some good things like that because I do think that whole question of you know which is more important, being or redemption, and can they be dis- separated or priori- prioritized, is still part of the debate going on today.
1: So in the, in the midst of all this, I have something i want to just ask you i'm going to throw this out there and you can uh answer next week or whenever you feel like it okay all right so in your um in your thesis you argue i i believe in your thesis or so you mention that art is not complete till experienced by an audience correct all right so if we have that and then we also have that the, the- <laughs> I feel like I'm being set up. (laughs) Okay. You're being being asked an interesting question, I think, is what's being asked. Um, So you have in the account of creation, you have basically a temple building ceremony. Mm -hmm. And the last thing that goes in the temple is the image. Right. And that's where man comes in because we are the image of God. So then you have the same thing in the temple. Would that be that the temple and the tabernacle are never actually completed? until man is interacting with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is that kind of where that yeah. kind of goes? And those two things kind of go hand in hand.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Until, until it is serving the purpose it was created for, it's just a building. And, it's, and I believe, uh, I, I, would need to, I think it's not until those first sacrifices are offered that God actually shows up. And that's whenever so that he blesses. Sense yeah because now it's functioning as it, it it's supposed to function, and the, the people have witnessed what Solomon has cre- managed to create there, so yeah, and you know it, and the same thing can be said you know about the Bible it's not complete until we re- interact with it mm-hmm. um, you know it, we can look at various elements of faith it, without our interaction, without our participation it, it's like a hammer left in the yard. I mean, what is it? it's it's a piece i mean this sounds almost a little um too emphatic it's a piece of junk until somebody picks it up and actually starts to use it you know it's something to break a lawnmower blade until somebody starts to use it and so um you know it you've got to pick it up and you've got to use it or it's just going to do damage or it's going to get completely lost pick one Mm. so um yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why people have a hard time with matters of faith is because they th- they've never actually used them. They've looked at them. They, they've maybe thought about them, but they've never put them to use for the purpose that they were created for, and it, they just seem like something heavy to carry around.
1: So, okay, anyhow. Cool. I like it. <laughs> well, that kind of concludes us for today. Um, everyone, thanks for joining us. Um, I hope you enjoyed it uh it was we made it through
0: <laughs> <laughs> i i uh, couldn't talk i'm sorry maybe next week i'll well, be better <laughs> and,
1: I, and my my voice is barely here i'm i'm just barely holding on so hopefully that didn't annoy everyone too much um but we will see you next week and uh, in the meantime raven creek sc is uh where you can find us on the social media ravencreek sc.com is the website and until then come be part of the conversation and we'll see you next time thanks
0: bye bye faith and other oddities podcast a raven creek social club production don't forget to follow us on facebook twitter and instagram if you like what you've heard please write us a review on itunes or consider supporting us on
1: patreon.com slash raven creek sc as always thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week